Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. A Podcast One production. G'day, Adam Spencer here with another edition of The Big Questions. I emceed the Singularity U event in Sydney. If you haven't heard of Singularity U, it's the concept of people thinking on the topic of our exponentially growing technologies. What impact will the move towards artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. have on the world in which we live? In this episode, you'll meet Professor Sarah Bergbreiter. Sarah designs robots. And amongst other things, I asked her, how small can you make a robot? Well, thank you so much for coming on The Big Questions, Sarah. It's lovely to have you here. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? So I'm currently a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Maryland. I study robotics and microsystems, and so that really comes down to very small robots and using the same processes that you use to make computer chips to make better sensors and actuators for larger robots. At the uh, Singularity U Australia Summit, I think you, you said it's a fascinating and exciting time to be in this field, and you sort of had four reasons that were the structure around why you were so excited. I mean, in, in short, why is this such an exciting space. So you have robots that are becoming more adaptable, and that means they're able to work in environments that they couldn't work in before. So robots traditionally have had to know where everything is in their environment, and we call that a structured environment. And now they're able to, just through the way we design the mechanisms, as well as with AI, able to get through into other environments and work in other environments. So that's one of the things. They're becoming more adaptable. They're also becoming smaller, and that means I can make larger numbers of them, and they're also lower cost, which ultimately means they're going to be more ubiquitous in our lives. And that's one of the areas that I work in, is very small-scale robotics. And then they're also becoming softer and safer and more social. And by softer, I mean they're able to work with human beings, and they're not made necessarily of rigid metal materials that robots have traditionally been made from. So imagine a very fancy balloon, effectively, as your mm. robot now. And so you don't mind working right next to a balloon, I'm sure. So the those are the kind of things that uh, are creating these robots that are safer to work around. And then finally, robots are becoming more autonomous, meaning that they're able to do more on their own without human direction. You showed a great little video uh, comparing different years in the DARPA challenge. It's a bit of a robot geeky thing, but I love the DARPA challenge. Can you explain to people, first of all, what the DARPA challenge is, and we'll compare it from 2015 to today? Right. So there have been several DARPA challenges. This one is specifically the DARPA Robotics Challenge mm. that started in around 2013, 2014. And the idea came after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And the basic 
premise was that if you were able to get a robot in to that environment, you would have been able to save a lot of the, or prevent a lot of the problems that happened down the road. And so in this case, the teams were trying to navigate a couple different tasks. I think there were eight different tasks and you had to walk through some rubble, you had to turn a valve, you had to be able to get into a Jeep, interestingly enough. Because we're talking situations where time is of the essence, right. but humans just can't go anywhere near. Right, you don't want humans to get there because it's so dangerous mm-hmm. uh, for the humans. And so, so that was the idea behind the challenge. Um, so originally I had a student who went down to the trials and this was in 2014 and he said it was like watching paint dry (laughs) because they were so slow and they just, it just took them forever to do, Mm. take a step even. Um, and at the actual challenge in the finals in 2015, two robots were able to, uh, complete all eight tasks. It's moving quickly. I've seen videos of a robot doing a sort of successful backflip, like you sometimes see someone who's just scored the winning goal in the European football finals or something like that. But when you show that video, there's a little caveat to the the backflipping robot, isn't there? Right. So it's not always successful. (laughs) It's one of the caveats. Um, So the, the important thing to think about when you see a lot of these robot videos on YouTube is that these are culled from a, probably a lot of different attempts at getting a robot to do this. And ultimately, you can get a robot to do this repeatedly, but it's a big challenge. There are a lot of statistics involved, and so it's important to think that, and, and critically think about the videos and try to understand that this maybe only happened 10% of the time. So even that amazing backflipping robot does have a blooper reel. If you keep watching the video, it has a blooper at the end. In yeah. fact, the, wasn't the phrase you said had the, the best way to prevent the robot apocalypse at the moment is just add stairs. stairs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Robots don't do so fantastically. That was the stairs. old Doctor Who Dalek conundrum, yeah. wasn't it? Just yes. run up a flight of stairs. Exactly. And suddenly they couldn't take over the universe. Right. You'd be safe. Well, yeah. how would that whole idea of movement, because I've seen video footage of some of the things you and your colleagues work with, where in fact we do now have robots that can go to a corner then straight up mm-hmm. the wall or back at a wall that's sloping back on itself at 45 degrees or right. climb up a pole by going mm-hmm. around it. What, what are the challenges in getting that sort of mobility into a robotic device? So there's a lot of different ways to do something like that. One of the best examples is these kind of snake-like robots. Um, so a lot of that comes from Howie Chosette's lab at Carnegie Mellon. And there's some really interesting challenges mm-hmm in how you create what we call compliance in the robot. And so basically allowing the robot to handle uh, unexpected bits of the terrain. And so um, the snake type robots that come out of Howie's lab have these what we call series elastic actuators. So they have effectively a spring along with the motor that allows it to, to move in a softer, more compliant way. And so that's one of the ways that you can achieve that. Other things that people are working on to do those same kind of crazy tasks is different ways to hang on to walls and climb walls. So there's obvious things like magnetics, but then there's also things that are inspired by geckos, for example. Mm. And so the, the toes of geckos have a really interesting hierarchical structure that allow them to climb walls and run across ceilings and hopefully not fall down on you in your bed, right? The good people at the Australian Centre for uh, Field Robotics at the University of Sydney Mm -hmm. have a robot called Swagbot. 
which is a pretty cool name yes. for a robot. Well, what is it that gives Swagbot its swag? So they have a lot of cool robots there, first off. But I think one of the interesting things about that particular robot is that it's designed to work on cattle ranches, which are incredibly rough environments to be able to get around. So you have to be incredibly rugged, have impressive suspension effectively to be able to handle the kind of ditches and, and things that you would do there, along with obviously the perception system to be able to see uh, that you're going to run off a cliff or something like that and not do that. And so this is, this is, this is the whole concept of adaptability, isn't it? That yes. A robot that can function not just in an incredibly sterile Structured, everything at right angles, Known nothing environment, moving. Yeah, getting it out into real human places that it might encounter in the world. In academia, we often just demonstrate our robot on the benchtop, right, in a laboratory setting. We're like, "Hooray, it works!" But ultimately, the idea is being able to push these outside of the lab, outside of these structured environments, like a factory, for example, into the real world, and that's when they'll really become ubiquitous. Where does the Google arm? farm fit into this because that's that's a video you can watch online that's a little bit weird and disconcerting when you first see it but explain to people the google arm farm because that's a fascinating place so this idea of adaptability goes beyond just being able to move around right also the one of the challenges with robotics has been just trying to pick up different objects so something that's soft and squishy uh, along with a glass or a piece of fruit, for example. So all of these things are tricky traditionally for uh, robots to handle. And there's lots of different ways to be able to do that. One is just design that into your mechanisms, design that softness that we talked about earlier, as well as incorporate some artificial intelligence. And that's what the Google Arm Farm is designed to do. So to apply things like deep learning from artificial intelligence, you just need a lot of data. So I tried this, it was successful or not. And so in that case, they have an entire, a big room full of robot arms. They must have dozens of robot arms in this room. And they are just continually, 24 hours a day, trying to pick up different objects in a bin in front of it with different strategies and determining success or not success. So each, each time they attempt to pick something up, they're measuring all the numbers that determine what the arm was doing. Yes, yeah, so they know what they're doing and then they're measuring some metric of how well they picked up Did the they object. pick it up, did it drop, did it break, etc. Exactly. And the then more the successful ones they do, they can keep feeding that back into the system saying use these sort of numbers more than the numbers that exactly. saw us Exactly, so they're weighting their it. neural network based on that data. When we talk about adaptability, and, and so, you know, let's try and look to the future where robots are doing some stuff. I could imagine they'd either be doing much better stuff in the human areas we've already got them operating. They could move into new, already existing human areas and human marketplaces. Or thirdly, there could just be completely new things robots do that we haven't even thought of being done yet because you'd need a robot to do them. Are they the only possible fields? Have I pretty much covered everything there? And is it going to happen equally in each? Do we not know? Where, where do we think that it will go in terms of adaptability? I know that's a big question, but... That's a huge question. Have a bit of a swing at that if you can, Polly. So I think that um, certainly the adaptability can push it into areas that people traditionally operate that might be dull, dirty, or dangerous. The kind of That's the three Ds, isn't it? The triple D, dull, robotics. dirty, dangerous. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so, so you could imagine once you have robots that can operate environments like that, you could actually pull people away from the dangerous parts of their job, for example. 
The other thing that you could imagine potentially is if I had a robot or if I had a system that could do this, what would I do with that, right? And so, so it's kind of a bottom-up approach versus a top-down approach. And so this is, I suppose, where people make all of their millions in industry is they come up with a clever idea that's a need that people never quite recognized as a need. I think one of the fascinating things is that there's no limit to human want, right? We get something that works well and then immediately, well, wouldn't it be great if I could do this too? Mm. And so the idea of um, being able to have your robotic doctor at home, for example, mm. um, might be something that... How would a robotic doctor work? So I could imagine a lot of different things. Maybe it's a very small scale thing that could just uh, take measurements uh, on particular days or just sensors that you wear and kind of in collaboration with sensors that you might wear. Um, I could imagine something larger scale, something tricorder-like, but something with some mobility that it could um, scan you in a particular way if you needed that. Or something that could be given to someone who's at home recovering from a specific situation or procedure where certain things need to be monitored fairly regularly, but you don't need to be in a clinical setting for it to happen. Exactly. Or rehabilitation kind of along the same mm. lines. So if somebody, a patient has a stroke or surgery and they need to go through some physical therapy afterwards, a robotic exoskeleton could certainly help with that. And that might be something that's soft, that they could pull on, that they would just have at home. Is it true that some people who have purchased things already, say, from big Amazon warehouses the vast bulk of that processing has been done by robots in, in, in getting the stock and getting it ready? There's a good portion of the process that's being done by robots. Really what happens most of the time in an Amazon warehouse is a robot will move a pallet of goods over to a human operator who then picks out the correct item and puts it in the box. But these pallets are being just moved around the warehouse by robots, and these are just vast warehouses. And so for people trying to picture it, we're not talking there a robot that walks and talks like a person. It's like, like a much larger version of those robotic vacuum cleaners that yes, go around the house sort of image? Exactly. So imagine a very large Roomba that can effectively <laughs> lift up a pallet a couple inches off of the ground and then drive around with it. At a much smaller scale, you said one of your specialties is small robots. I, I, did I read somewhere you've made robots, you know, the size of a grain of rice? A pretty large grain of rice, perhaps, <laughs> but yes, modest. yes, yes. Uh-huh. How, how small have you made robots and what's, what's the secret to doing that? So it depends on how you define robot, once mm-hmm. again. Let me put that out, out front. So a lot of our systems we're using actually to better understand how biology works. So things like how ants locomote, how they're able to move around. And so the smallest legged robot that we have in the lab is about two and a half millimeters long right now. It's a milligram. 10 to the minus 6 kilograms. Made of? Uh, So this is actually 3D printed. Um, So it is, uh, in this case, using something called two-photon photolithography. And it only cures Is that as much fun as it sounds? It's awesome. I love it. So it's effectively two lasers. And only where you have two photons of energy does the material cure. So you can make really small voxels. So traditionally, a 3D printer that you might have on a library or that you can buy off the shelf, you would have, say, uh, anywhere from tens of microns to hundreds of microns is your smallest feature size. This is less than a micron. Your hair is 50 to 100 microns in diameter for reference. So you can make really small so things. the intricacy you could put on a very small device is... is 
exactly. very deep. Yeah, very detailed. And so we separately work on motors that can ultimately... So this one is driven by a magnetic field right now, but we separately work on motors and sensors that you could put on a robot at that size scale. Can we get robots of that size? Can we get them airborne? Oh, yes. So that's another thing that my group and other groups work on. So in, in this case, the smallest that can actually generate lift and fly in a controlled way has about a three centimeter wingspan. So it's a, still a pretty big bug, but it's you know not huge for sure. So the, the, this one came out of Rob Wood's lab at Harvard um, and formerly Ron Fearing's lab at UC Berkeley as well. So this is called the Robo B, and they're doing some pretty awesome stuff with it. Are they at the point yet of even thinking what the applications could B, if you'll excuse the pun, or is it still just the, the joy of the design and creation at this stage with something like RoboB? So the original goal is also in academia was to really try to understand how insects fly. So there's a lot of interesting things that have been discovered just by having this physical model of an insect, which you can tweak very easily, mm-hmm. whereas you can't do that to the biology quite so easily. Because whereas in- insects and animals have are flying with you know, millions of years of evolution built into their systems. When we make a plane, we, we really have created a human car that we lift off the ground with some amazing technology, but our, they don't, it doesn't fly in that traditional right. evolution. Planes sense, don't does flap it? and cars don't walk, yes. Mm. Yeah. So, so in this case, this was in originally trying to understand the biology a little bit, but they certainly are starting to think about potential applications for something like this. The challenge for something at that scale is power autonomy. Being able to have a power source on board or energy that you can scavenge from your environment in order to sustain that level of uh, flight. It was many years ago in pop culture we had the idea of the the fantastic voyage which was taking a, a group of doctors and shrinking them down, putting them in a very small spacecraft, putting that into the human body to try and save. It might have been a US president who'd had a stroke or... It was a, it was a Soviet spy. Ah. Uh, as, uh, you've, why am I not surprised thing? that you've watched yeah. that a few times? <laughs> so uh, it is said to be one of the potential frontiers if we had devices we could control that are sufficiently small yes. that can read and interact with their environment. They could be used in environmental or biological settings, how far down the path of a you know, nano-med robots are we? So there are some examples of very early systems out there. Um, for it, being able to go through the bloodstream, like the Fantastic Voyage did, is a real challenge. You have to be very small for that. So probably less than a micron in size or around a micron in size. And you said a human hair is about 50 or so. 50 to 100. And so the the way people are approaching that is effectively looking at your structure, being able to respond, uh, do the sensing and the response, the actuation in the environment. And so one of the examples is people are using what's called DNA origami. So you can design DNA. So many of us remember the base pairs, A, G, C, T, mm-hmm. that you have in DNA. You can design that so that it folds up in a particular way. And you can also design it so that you could have it responsive to a particular signal in your environment. So, for example, uh, a chemical signature from a, from a tumor. And so once this DNA origami box is there, it could open up in response to that chemical's trigger 
and release a medical payload. So that might be some kind of medicine. But it's the trigger that makes sure it gets to the right spot exactly. before it delivers said and payload. And so that, that would potentially remove a lot of the side effects that you see in cancer treatments that you have right now. But they don't necessarily need always to be that small. So you could imagine there are already camera pills that you can swallow mm -hmm. that can give doctors a picture of what's going on in your GI tract. You could imagine doing the same kind of thing with a small robotic system that could, for example, grab a biopsy as it goes through as well. When, when you spoke at the Singularity U Australia Summit, you showed a video of self-assembling mini robots and they look like they were all maybe the, the size of a match head or something but then they were going together and forming different shapes now i may have the scale completely wrong but what's the idea of a self-assembly like, i saw a little smirk on your face there such that i'm guessing they might have been a little bit smaller than match heads but what are oh, self-assembling they're bigger robots? they're no. bigger oh. so so the 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 kilobots i think is what you're referring to um from radika nagpal's lab um, Interesting name too, as far as branding goes. But keep keep yeah, talking about so, kilobots. Yeah, so there were a thousand twenty-four of them. So that's where the kilo came okay. from. Um, I thought it was killer, K O W L E R, and I thought no, 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 not killer. Talking marketing people. <laughs> no kilo, kilo. Uh, two so to the power of ten. Two love to it. the power of ten, exactly. So the the kilobots were designed to to really test the idea that I could have very simple rules. So the robots themselves are incredibly simple, minimal communication between each robot. And by kind of programming in a shape, they're able to assemble themselves into that shape. Now these are very slow. They work on what's called stick slip locomotion. So imagine uh, one of those little robots that you can buy at the store that looks like a toothbrush head. It just has a vibrating motor on it. Mm. That's effectively the same way that they operate. So these videos that I showed operate over 11 hours long, for example. It took them to, to form that. But you add a little better locomotion, and you could do that same thing in half an hour or even faster, potentially. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things that I think you can do if you have a lot of robots at your disposal and being able to programmably assemble them into something that you might want. When you talk about making robots and robotics softer, softer and safer, do you mean softer simply as in not really heavy metal that can bang into things? Both. So, so there's there's what one way we would call, or one type of robot that we might we might call soft robotics uh, are using these series elastic actuators, meaning that they have a motor and a spring. So they still might be made out of rigid materials but that spring adds some softness. So if it hit you, that spring would give a little bit, and so it wouldn't kind of impact you with that same energy that you would get with a completely rigid system. During which time, hopefully, the system's recognized I've impacted something yeah, and, and stops stop. moving in that direction. Okay. <laughs> exactly, so, so the other way to do it is just through your material choice. So using something like a rubber or another kind of elastomer or fabric, um, filled with air is another kind of softer type approach. Because rubber could get you into the field of, of things you could genuinely wear. Yes. And, you know, like, like your sort of, you know. Or fabric, Like yes. your athletic wear and your, you know, your, your skin's tights and things like that. If, if those materials were smart and sensitive and effectively oh, robotic, yes. there's, there's a host of applications, I presume. Oh, yeah. So I think a big one is in exoskeletons and augmentation of human performance. So... 
people already do this in manufacturing environments. BMW, I know, uses some exoskeletons in some of their plants. And the idea is to help somebody do a particular task in a, in a safer way. So it, it doesn't allow them to, for example, move in an unsafe way or something that might pose some stress on their joints. And so those are fairly rigid still, but the idea that I could make it soft, so it is really something that I pull on as a sweatshirt or a vest or a jacket, would obviously make them much more comfortable and easier for people to use. How important will it be if these systems are to interact on mass with, with humans in day-to-day environments? How important would it be, Sarah, that they are things that we feel we, we can look at and relate to and it doesn't look like a machine. Is that important? Is that sort of human, what would you call it, sort of so- social interactivity, will that be important in mainstreaming robots or will they just be so functional and so amazing you won't care that it looks like it's your vacuum cleaner because you'll be able to tell it what to do and it will just do it while you're out for the day? I- I'm a fan of the second approach. I don't think they need to look like people. <laughs> um, I- I'd prefer my vacuum cleaner to look like a vacuum cleaner and mm. not like a person vacuum cleaning, probably. But if it's something that's looking after your elderly mother and is also and conversational and, and... Totally application-dependent, right? Mm. In that case, you do want something that is probably more human-like, that would be more comforting for you to see in a healthcare-type environment. Um, and so there is an interesting challenge, though, in how you design that robot and how human-like you might make it. So if you get something that is close to human-like, but not quite, it's something that we call the uncanny, uncanny valley. Indeed. And it freaks you out. <laughs> and you're like, that is spooky. I don't want to go anywhere near it. But if you there's, make there's it kind a gray of zone, so com- completely non-human is cool. Yeah, right. Amazingly human is cool. But if you're sort of 85 percent of the way there, even it's 98 percent of the way, it looks wow. weird. Like there's there's examples of androids that people design that I think still look kind of freaky to me, and so I imagine they look freaky to a lot of people. <laughs> um, so I think that it's a really tricky thing, and how you actually design the. Uh, the human robot interface effectively Mm. of these systems. So similar to the user interface that we have on our phones and computers, you really need to think about the interface between the robot and the human. You showed a video and I remember seeing this online a a, a couple of months ago and it was amazing. There were a couple of people in northern New South Wales stuck out the back in a strong rip and they were in real trouble. And rather than dispensing a human crew that would have taken six or seven minutes to get there, uh, the lifeguard, the human lifeguard, who I think might have been the Queensland lifesaver of the year, so amazing what they do, dispatches a drone, mm-hmm. controls that through video, gets a look at it, and the drone from in the sky drops this thing that as it hits the water just inflates as a life raft. It's incredible. I've always wondered, because there's no way those two people out in the ocean would have known this drone technology was possible yes. just as well we're drowning just like, on a okay. beach where there's a drone. Imagine what must have gone through their minds in this moment of stress and panic where suddenly in between them this giant life raft just starts inflating. Yeah, I think I would have been pissed because I'm like, I'm drowning and somebody is trying to take video of me from a drone. Because <laughs> you can hear drones, they're very loud. And so, but I would have been pretty happy when that thing started inflating. Um, Amazing. So when you talk about autonomy, what do, you, what do we mean by autonomy here? And what are the crucial challenges to overcome? 
So autonomy in general means that there's no human in the control loop for the mm. robot. So if you think of a robot as something that's able to perceive its world, make decisions based on what it perceives, and then act back upon the world, an autonomous robot would not have a human anywhere in that loop. Whereas something like a teleoperated robot would have a human in that, for example, the decision-making part of that mm. loop. And so autonomous robots really don't require human involvement or human input. And there's a host of challenges, depending on the application, almost always around being able to perceive your world and understand really what you're seeing. It's something that we're incredibly good at, um, that we've learned over time. And robots are slowly getting better at with a lot of the AI advances that have happened. But just being able to understand your world and how you're supposed to act within that world is a real challenge for robots. Because we've seen, for example, in, in computer AI at playing chess or mm -hmm. playing certain board games, in the last 12 months has had mind-blowing acceleration. And a chess program quite recently that had only been told the rules of chess mm -hmm. and started learning from nothing without witnessing a single game or anything in four hours the Google AI network got to the point where it could outplay any chess computer program ever designed, let alone any human, in four hours learning from nothing. So that's a staggering rate of explosion. But our ability or the ability of a device to tell the difference between a human and a tree and a car, are we still a long, long way away from that or are we on a similar sort of exponential path? So we're getting pretty good at that. I think one of the interesting challenges for autonomy showed up in the um, in the Go uh, mm -hmm. AI. So in that case, one of the interesting things is that in one of the early matches, the computer did an unexpected move. Mm. The, the human champion was like, "This is a ridiculous move. No human, no person would ever make that move," and ended up winning. The human learned from that and realize that I can do a completely unexpected move and that will screw up the computer. And so the challenge for autonomy is being able to handle that unexpected thing that you haven't been trained on. Mm -hmm. so, so a lot of these deep learning algorithms depend on a lot of data coming in that's used to train this neural network. And so if you don't have the appropriate data that encapsulates this particular challenge, it's really not going to have any idea of what to do because it just hasn't been trained on that data. So I think that's one of the challenges that's still upcoming is how to represent these unexpected events within these AI-type systems. And that is going to be solved, I think, at some point, but it's still something that's going to take some time to get something that's less task-specific than AIs are right now. So in closing, let me ask you, as a, as a world expert in the field, do you actually know already now the specific date and time of day, month, year, <laughs> that the robots will rise up and kill us all and you're just not allowed to tell us or will it come as a pleasant surprise to you as well? No, I don't know anything. <laughs> Because it is a concern that some people have. Is it, a, is it a concern that best lives in the realm of sci-fi or is it the sort of question that we should have at the back of our minds as we continue to evolve these systems? So I think there's a really interesting example of this in the world of autonomous vehicles, the mm -hmm. idea that this I'll be able to get into a car and it'll drive me wherever I want. So the 
I would say the experts, the world experts in that particular field do not think it's going to happen in their lifetime. They don't, don't think they're going to be able to get into an autonomous cab in Manhattan and be able to drive around. That being said, I think you can go to Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction uh, writer, had three laws. The, probably the most famous is any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. My favorite is that if you ask an eminent researcher in a particular field if something is possible, they're probably right. But if they say it's impossible, they're probably wrong. And I think that's being shown in autonomous vehicles in that there are a lot of these challenges. And these experts recognize that there's a huge number of challenges that need to be solved to really make that problem robust or that solution robust. But there's so much money and talent getting thrown at these problems now that I think some of those things will happen a lot faster than they expect. So I'm, I'm firmly planted on the fence in the middle of this argument. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I think it will happen in my lifetime. Very, very interesting stuff. Wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Thank you. This episode of The Big Questions, as always, was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the Podcast One Studios, series producer Caroline Pegram, and the theme music provided by the good people at Uncanny Valley. If you want to hear more Big Questions answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. The Big Questions. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.